0: Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul.
1: Welcome to the second episode of the Upwards Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Hummel, and today I'm with my colleague, Melissa Shackelford, who leads our program team. Hi, Melissa.
0: Hi, Dan, thank you. So glad to join you today.
1: So today we're gonna listen in on a conversation between you and Marilyn McIntyre, who we recently hosted in a series of virtual events here at Upper House. Tell us a little about Marilyn.
0: Absolutely. Marilyn McIntyre is a wide-ranging author of several books on language and faith, including Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict, When Poets Pray, and Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, to name a few. She is also a professor of medical humanities at the UC Berkeley-UCSF Joint Medical Program, an experienced educator of American literature, and has taught courses such as medical humanities, literature in the natural world, portraiture and character in literature and art, and approaches to autobiography. She has taught college students, seminarians, medical students, and adult learners for many years and loves to coach both experienced writers and anyone who wants to write, quote, just to see what happens, as she says.
1: That's great. So what first piqued your interest to invite Marilyn to Upper House?
0: Yeah, so Marilyn came to mind about two years ago in a conversation I was having with a few Upper House community members on what need Upper House might meet for them programmatically or otherwise And one person said something like, I don't know how to talk to my family members or close friends across differences. What do I even say? And I happened to be reading Marilyn's book, Caring for Words and a Culture of Lies, at the time. And so I recommended the book, which provides practical and playful strategies for stewarding our language use. And I subsequently realized she would be a great voice to bring to Upper House.
1: Yeah, and that's how a lot of our programming here is planned at Upper House, is we have conversations with people in the community. And come to sort of think about different people or books that will speak into the needs of our community.
0: Yeah, and actually in this case, about nine months later, I met Marilyn in person at a Christians in the Visual Arts conference where she was like a contributing poet or writer in residence where she would present written reflection pieces after the sessions that were part prayer and part soul-searching while also weaving this tapestry of connections that had just occurred between several speakers and topics. And I found her way with words in that moment to be so profound and yet so approachable.
1: Yeah, so Marilyn was with us virtually a couple weeks ago now. Are there any reflections you have on your time with her now that we're a little removed?
0: I'm really glad we hosted a writer's workshop based on her book, Make a List, How a Simple Practice Can Change Your Life and Open Your Heart. The way she uncovers the subtle depths and surprising potential of list making was a great example of her role, not just as a writer, but as a teacher of writers. I'm so glad I was able to have this conversation with Marilyn that you'll hear today as it dives into more of this gift of hers and some of her personal story that reveals where her compelling care for words comes from.
1: Thanks, Melissa. And I should mention that those events with Marilyn are actually on Upper House's YouTube channel, and you can access that through upperhouse.org as well. So listeners are in for a treat. This conversation ranges from Marilyn's unique upbringing in India to a fascinating discussion of the art and craft of writing to Marilyn's passion for teaching. So it's our pleasure now to give you this upwards conversation between Melissa and Marilyn McIntyre.
0: I'd love to start off by hearing a little bit about your family growing up. Tell me what that was like for you.
2: Well, I was the daughter of missionary parents. I was born in India, where my mother was for almost 14 years. They were there during the change of power from the British to the Indian government. So it was really interesting historical time. And they came back when we were very small. So I didn't grow up in India, but their whole formative years in India really gave us a kind of backdrop to our family culture. Lots of stories about dealing with the orphans. They were a school for orphans. There was a boys school and a girls school. We were just brought up with, a, I think, a very healthy awareness of the fact that there were people in other parts of the world who didn't enjoy any of the privileges we had. And by American standards, we lived pretty marginal Life. We had had enough money to eat for the month, but that's about where a lot of people live. I feel as though they gave us a kind of ethic of gratitude and a an understanding of the practicality of applied faith. Care for the hungry, you be attentive to people around you, you notice your own blessings. And I'm just so grateful for all of that. The other thing that was really formative for me besides A great deal of church going and prayer meetings and all that growing up in a small evangelical church was that my grandparents lived in our home. Being in a three-generation household, I'm sure probably created some tensions for my parents, but we didn't know about them. And my grandmother in particular was deeply formative for me in terms of her love of language. She was an English teacher also. She read us psalms. She read us stories. She read us poems. She had a lovely, edgy sense of humor I think that listening to her laugh about all the various characters' foibles in Winnie the Pooh was very formative for my own sense of humor. So, when I look back on our family, I don't mean to romanticize it, but, and I certainly have departed from the particular faith culture they inhabited. I'm just so grateful for the grounding in appreciation of scripture and of language and just basic human kindness and a deep sense of responsibility
0: for each other in beloved community that they gave me. That's beautiful. What a wonderful gift. I wonder, do you have a particular memory or maybe a reflection on one of those core aspects of your childhood that influenced specifically the formation of your faith or your view of God? It was so
2: pervasive. It's hard to tell the kind of conversion story that some people have. I remember as a child singing, once I was blind, but now I see, and I'm and thinking, when was that? Of course, there are moments in my own life of faith where I became deeply aware of Christ's presence or of being mm-hmm. held and accompanied or given words in prayer that were really striking for me. And I probably would identify the words in some of the hymns that we sang as formative texts for me as i said they read scripture they read psalms all that hymn singing was part of that evangelical culture that is amazingly formative when i look back i think about my childhood faith what comes back to me are phrases from hymns and some of them aren't even hymns i like very much you know i don't think they're very musically interesting or any of that but i still feel as though particular lines and phrases have stayed with me in strengthening, grounding ways. Another thing that I remember vividly is this wonderful Sunday school teacher, we all called her Aunt Ruby, who had us memorize passages. And I remember going through 1 Corinthians 13. In the King James Version, as a child, and I have to say, it's not like I think the King James Version ought to be the authoritative text, but I do think the antique language gives you something to reach into that connects you to the long communion of saints. Hmm. And the fact that we had to learn phrases like, charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. You know, it sounds a little bit ridiculous in contemporary English context. But I remember Aunt Ruby describing what vaunt meant or what it means to be puffed up and proud. And I was just fascinated by the fact that words have history and that in the course of those histories, the sensibility around those words really changes. So that was really formative, not only for my faith, but for my love of language.
0: I was going to say that's fascinating that both of your examples are really around the use of words and how they speak to faith and express faith. And how that is so seamlessly woven through who you are um, as a person and a professional and the work that you do. That's beautiful. Did you ever come to a moment where you had any crises of faith? Um, you spoke of parting, you know, from the particular tradition maybe of your youth. And what was that like? And what were some of those decisions that you made in that turning point?
2: Well, there were a number of those, you know, and especially around the time I went to graduate school, I was restless in church. I remember doing a lot of study in Roman Catholicism, and I spent some time attending Catholic churches for a period of years. I also spent a period of years in Quaker meetings so I've really done my wandering in the broad waters of Christian tradition I was drawn to what seemed to me to be to represent the best of Catholicism in the way in which Catholic tradition has preserved liturgy I didn't grow up with liturgy and liturgical prayer and I, I we now attend a, an Episcopalian Church and part of that too is that I love the Book of Common Prayer and so discovering this trove of Prayers and practices that have been crafted over generations of worshiping people gave me something to step into rather than to invent. Because in the church I grew up in, a lot of the prayer was spontaneous and that has its own richness and beauty and heartfeltness that you don't want to lose. But at times when I felt pretty distant from my faith and skeptical and discouraged, and my own life was in various places of disruption, I just felt. Having prayers that I could just try on or step into that I didn't have to invent was really helpful to me. And I do remember one particular crisis point where I just kind of felt as depressed. And I'm I'm not given to depression, but I think if I've ever experienced anything, I would call clinical depression. It was at this one moment. And I just felt like I can't pray. I don't even, prayer doesn't even make any sense to me anymore. And I remember sitting cross-legged on my bed, just kind of thinking, okay, I'll just be quiet and meditate, try to go inside and just open up and see what happens. And like this word came to me, which was, oh, it made me laugh at the time because what came to me was just say yes. I was so taken aback because it was such a direct imperative. And I said, okay, yes. And then I started to laugh. And then something really opened up. And it feels like that was a, opened an avenue of return that, you know, went through stages. But it's not like I've never wandered from faith. And as I said, I've wandered through various faith communities. And each one of them, I have to say, seems to me to have preserved something valuable. So when I think about the Protestant Reformation and all of the, what people think of as the fracturing of the church, it would be good if the the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, could reunify. On the other hand, I think that in that long course of denominationalism and all of the kind of tributaries of faith, each faith community has preserved something of real value that we can learn from. Like the Quakers, with their deep commitment to the silence and waiting on the spirit and also their commitment to connecting faith and civic action. Those two things seem really foregrounded and important and that the Anglicans and Episcopalians with their deep love of liturgy have in some ways preserved that more than Roman Catholics have. So I just feel like all of that wandering was not wasted time.
0: Absolutely. I think you, um, you represent And speak to the nuance of the diversity of Christian faith in your writing. And your reference to the word body reminds me of the chapter in Speaking Peace where you dissect how the word body has been used in different contexts and how the metaphor of body in the body of Christ Um, is so beautiful and has interesting implications for how we need each other. I was really struck by how that word, when taken to, or the metaphor, when when taken to its extreme can really teach us deeper ways of how we are to be interconnected that we haven't even tasted of yet.
2: And and some of that extends to a real open-mindedness and open-heartedness that I hope to preserve toward interfaith connection. And just leaving it to God's own mysterious ways and purposes. What about people outside the Christian faith? I'm just not willing to be one of those people who draws such a clear boundary around Christianity. I can't imagine that God is working in these other populations. I just think God's love is, as another hymn puts it, for the love of God is broader than the measures of the mind. I love that phrase Mm. from a hymn that we've have no conception of how gracious and how great that love is.
0: So you've spoken about some formative experiences and how they perhaps contributed to your nuanced care for words. Um, You spoke of your grandmother. Um, I'm wondering if there's any other experiences within your family culture, perhaps in how you even interacted that contributed to the grace that you, you give in how you speak and interact with others. What I would say is
2: there were six of us. My brother and I were the only kids, so two people in each generation. And it was a long time before I realized that not every family sat around after dinner and talked. But there was a lot of talk. My two grandparents were from the South. Grandma grew up in Virginia and Grandpa grew up in North Carolina, and they were storytellers. So there would be a lot of story. There was a lot of political opinionating some of which I would very much depart from these days. People were not afraid to say what they thought, and I had the feeling even as a child that I was listened to, although my father liked to hold forth at great length, and so (laughs) we did a lot of listening. You know, it was a verbal culture, and everybody read, and there was some reading aloud. And, you know, we would watch TV together, but watching the news or even watching ads, people would have comments about what we saw on the screen. So I didn't realize until I was older what a gift all that conversation was. There was always someone who had something to say that might be of interest. And I learned that asking, what do you mean by that, is a good place to go to the next level of conversation. You know, just these very basic conversational moves were formed as habit in that early family culture.
0: That's a great image, impeccable um, example to model that we should be bringing into our homes. That's That's wonderful. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer or a teacher? Obviously there's so many examples of your love of words, even as you were growing up. Did your faith play a role at all in your educational or your career pursuits?
2: Well, I think that I always enjoyed writing and I remember writing a pretty long poem when I was just five or six years old. You know, there was a lot of encouragement for that. And my grandmother, I have to say, also was someone who, unlike a lot of teachers now, I think, I never got the happy face, honey, that was terrific kind of response to things. She, oh. would, she would appreciate and approve, but she'd also say, you know, you could do this here and it would make it read a little better. Or no, you really need to put the comma over here so that, do you see how that clarifies the meaning of the sentence? But she had this way of gentle correction that I so appreciate, especially because I think that a lot of kids that I've seen come into college, because most of my career I've worked with undergraduate, have gotten so many A's, that's fine, you're good, you know, that the good ones don't have people pushing them hard enough. There are many wonderful English teachers who do. But I have seen an awful lot of kids come to college thinking, Yeah, I'm fine, I'm good, as they say. And I think no you're not. You know, you have a learning edge. There's more you could do here. I appreciate that element of gentle, constructive criticism and people who weren't afraid to say, you need to work on this. Do this over. Let's see if you can push it a little further toward more clarity. But I don't know that I always thought about being a teacher. My mother was a teacher and my grandmother was a teacher. So there's that legacy. There are also a lot of preachers in our lineage. The road not taken for me was medicine. I don't know that I ever really thought I would be a doctor, but there was a period when I was quite interested. I'd read about Dr. Ida Scudder, who was the first woman doctor in South India. I loved reading her biography and Tom Dooley. And so missionary doctors were sort of in my hero pantheon. And so finding my way into medical humanities and as a professional, I think was my way of Revisiting My Road Not Taken. But yeah, it was clear pretty early on that my great love was it led me toward language and reading. And I spent a lot of hours in book. I remember one of the great reading experiences being tucked up when I had tonsillitis in high school. Being allowed to just sit and read for three days straight. That just wow. felt like bliss.
0: Well, before we talk more about your... Profession as teacher and educator. I'd love to hear more about your life as a writer. I think your portfolio of published work is fascinating and wide ranging. What was your first foray into publishing?
2: Well, other than, you know, publishing handmade newspapers as kids, which was really fun. I think my first actual published academic article, which is probably completely inaccessible anymore, was a Piece about Emily Dickinson called The Divine Adversary, and it was about her arguments with God in her poem. And I published a piece about Whitman, but these were sort of graduate school papers that managed to get published. My very first book, of course, was The Warmed Over Dissertation, which was very fun to work on, although if I had to do it over again, I'd probably reorganize it. But it was looking at 20th century autobiographies that were written in the wake of serious life crises. And I was really interested in how people in telling their own story have to find a new way to tell it because the existing stories like the conversion narrative or the coming of age narrative just don't fit what happened to them. For instance, there are so many memoirs and stories that come out of the Holocaust where they start with, there is no way to tell this. This was unspeakable. And then, of course, 300 pages later, it turns out there was a way to tell it, but they had to invent it. In C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, which is a memoir that he wrote right after his much-beloved wife died, it's very fragmentary. It's a journal that he wrote in the weeks following her life. And a lot of the journaling has to do with, how do I tell this? And so I became really interested in how we adopt narrative forms the way we receive the alphabet. The culture tells us there's this kind of story or this kind of story, the the arc or the circle. And what if your story doesn't fit that? Maybe this goes back to the fact that I don't have a conversion narrative. And even to say, you know, tell us about your life of faith. I think, I don't know, where do I begin? So the where do I begin became a really interesting question. So that was my very first book. And the the second one, which was not a dissertation, and it was the first real book I published was on houses in American fiction, because American literature is very often looked at as the literature of exploration and movement and settlement and moving west and all of that. There's that whole tradition. Mm -hmm. But so many American novels, and also Walden, have a a house or a structure at the center. And in Moby Dick, it's a ship, and in Huckleberry Finn, it's a raft. But I became interested in how that metaphorical structure becomes an organizing device. So these were very literary things. And then after that, when I moved into hospice work and when I be- started doing medical humanities, I gave myself more permission to just write about whatever, uh, to write out of my own spirituality, to write out of my own interest in medicine and not to just kind of march along in my academic track. That's where the variety in the resume comes from.
0: That's beautiful. Was there... Any person or people in particular in that part of your writing journey that coached you or formed you in your writing perhaps gave you that freedom to be able to choose and expand? And how did they influence you?
2: I think, well, I think of two people. One is not one of my favorite professors. He was actually kind of a curmudgeon and not very much fun to work with, but I remember him as The first person who didn't effectively just pat me on the head and say, you're a good writer and move on. He took a paper I was pretty proud of about John Donne and metaphysical poetry. And he called me into his office and he sat me down and he said, so you clearly know how to do this. But I'm going to tell you that it gets a little bit boring when you lay out your argument all at the beginning. He said, what you want to do is take your reader on a journey, be a tour guide. Show them how you arrived at what you see and let the reader go through a process of discovery so that you're not just making a case, you're inviting them on a journey. And that changed everything for me. I just thought you said your writing will be a lot more lively. And so moving me from competent to something I think of as more fluid and flexible and lively and in the moment. That was just magical. And as I said, I think a lot of students who are essentially good writers don't get enough coaching in that direction to be better writers. And I love that idea. You know, when we talk about the living word and the Bible is a living word, I really connect that in my imagination with liveliness in the whole business of writing. That really to receive a word, a word is a little packet of energy. and What you're doing on that page is kind of Making an energy field that the reader can enter into.
0: That's a beautiful image. I love that. Many people struggle with the identity of, quote, being a writer. Did you ever resonate with this struggle in your writing journey? And at what point did you officially think of yourself as a writer? It sounds like it's always been in you, so perhaps there wasn't this hurdle, but how do you resonate or maybe not resonate with that?
2: Well, I do. And I think that one of the things about academic life that I don't think is necessarily helpful is that you are expected to write and publish. And I think too many of us are pushed to publish too early and it's too bad because now there's a lot of stuff that's sort of half-baked on the market. 10 years ago now, I can't say I retired because I'm busier than I ever was, but I left full-time undergraduate teaching and I started working part-time at a medical school teaching, working with med students on narrative. And and I started teaching part-time in seminaries and doing workshops and all of that. But so what I said to people about that move in my life was, no, I'm not retiring. I am becoming a writer who teaches instead of a teacher who writes. And it was, that was an interesting moment for me to claim writer as an identity rather than just something I do on the side. I'm also, it's interesting to me how I really feel that my if I have a gift in writing, it's in prose and nonfiction. Occasionally, I write a poem because I really enjoy writing them, and I've taught poetry courses and I've published some books of poetry. But when people introduce me as a poet, I just feel like no, nah, not exactly, because the poetry comes from somewhere else. When I when a poem comes to me, I think, oh, thank you, and I you know work with it, and I know some things to do to poem to make them happen. But it doesn't come from that same place of authority that I feel when I'm writing with the clarity that I aim for in prose. My husband really laughed at me one time when I said, well, I was speaking about a poet friend and I said, I would love to just be a poet like Hanun. And he just laughed and he said, so you've got four books of poetry out. Do you think there's some point at which you could think for yourself as a poet? <laughs> I thought, it's really interesting. Of course, it, Sounds silly, but I don't think of the poetry as something I have the same command over as the prose. Poetry feels more like a gift in the moment and the prose feels like something I I work at and I craft and then I share.
0: And I suppose we all have those areas of strength and then perceived weakness or beginning or growth where we feel confident exercising ourselves over here, but not in those other areas. It's great that others outside of us uh, help us see ourselves as well.
2: In recent years, I've really recommended to people in my writing workshops and courses that they adopt a writer as a teacher for a period of time and just learn from them. Like, do slavish imitation. Take a paragraph and write exactly the way, in my case, Annie Dillard would. I'd love to write like Annie Dillard before I die. I think she's just dazzling and lively. And... The how does she do that question? I think it's really worth spending time with. And I've often told the story that a friend told about going to the Boston Conservatory of Music, where they had them copy one of Bach's scores. And she said most of the students just thought it was a waste of time. Like we have Xerox machines, why are we doing this? But she said just putting the notes down where he put them by hand taught her a lot about composition. And I think trying to follow the structure of a writer's sentences teaches you a lot about how a sentence is a map of the mind or a, a paragraph is a mind at work and you follow paths. And the organization of it is filled with sort of subtle judgment
0: calls about what matters. That's a great piece of advice. That's phenomenal. Do you have something that in particular motivates you to write or what is your why for writing? That's a good
2: question. I certainly have been through moments of self-doubt that I imagine most people who do creative work have. And I remember even when I first published that first article on Emily Dickinson, the inner critic saying, really, does the world need another article about Emily Dickinson? And that's a completely disheartening question, because no, the answer is no, the world does not need another article about Emily Dickinson. And it took me a while to get to the place of thinking, but somebody might, and I don't need to know who it's for. And I think that that reconnects the whole enterprise of writing to my my understanding of faith, which is grace happens. And if we allow ourselves to be open to the flow of grace, then what we do in the world can be blessed in ways that we don't even know and we don't have to know. And that is so freeing, not to feel as though you're imparting wisdom to someone, but if you write what you have energy to write and pay attention to that energy, like, oh, yeah, I want to write this. And I don't care who it's for. People say, well, who's your audience? And I think, well, I can imagine who might read this. But there's a really healthy place of not caring who reads it. It's for whoever it's for. But what I'm given to do is write this thing. I've been given the energy. I've been given the motivation, the time, the heart for it. So if I receive that as a gift from the spirit that guides me, then that same spirit is going to give it to whoever it's for. And that's been really, really helpful to me. Freeing me from the really nasty inner critic who still has very debilitating questions that I have to beat down every time I write something. One of his questions, and it's a he, I have to say, but one of my inner critics questions, who do you think you are? You know, kind of attacking you at the level of why do you think you have the authority to say that? I think that's one a lot of people, especially a lot of women, struggle with. And so I think that part of the freedom of not writing always in an academic track, say, I'm just somebody who thought about these things. I'm not trying to put myself out as a spiritual leader. I have been a professor, but I'm not writing with my professional hat on. I just had these thoughts and now I'm offering them to you for whatever they're worth.
0: Bye. That's so freeing and really brings... At least for me as a listener and an aspiring writer, it, it brings writing into this context as an act of faith that we are, like you said, being faithful to say what we have the energy to say, what we feel called to speak and not to worry where its destination is my lands.
2: I'm working in a course through the uh, Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley this semester that I kind of designed for the moment we're in, in the middle of COVID, in the middle of a really troubling political season, in the middle of climate change. And so I came up with this course called Writing into the Unknown and really encouraged people who signed up for this course to bring in their fears, their anxieties, their awareness of how much is being dismantled and reorganized and is in a place of unknowing, both in people's personal lives and in our shared public life. So a lot of that has to do with not planning. Just start out, put down a sentence and see where it takes you or, you know, hold an image that's come up for you or name a thing that's been in the back of your mind and playing around at those edges of awareness. What's out there? Let's just start and see what unfolds. And those verbs like what unfolds or what develops or what wants to get said take it away from intention and planning and put it into that realm of play and openness to being moved and being made aware as you write of what needs to be written. And I increasingly think that's a very lively and life giving way to
0: work with words. That's fabulous. Sounds like it could be a next book, Writing into the Unknown very healing journey probably for many of us. I would love to think that. I would read it. <laughs> Absolutely. So as a writer, do you have certain writing habits that you routinely follow or any sort of structures or free writing practices? Can you tell us about what that looks like and maybe how that's evolved for you over time?
2: I'm not a particularly organized person, so I'm not one of those people who sits down at the same time every day and says, I'm sitting at my desk for the next four hours. Don't bother me. I sort of noodle around, and if I get stuck in the middle of a paragraph, I go do something else. And especially these days when we're all confined to our homes, pretty much, I have a little trampoline and I go do 100 steps on the trampoline, those little tiny mini trampolines, or just go put the dishes away or do something. And so those little breaks help me come back to it and look at it again. So I do a lot of, yeah, a lot of little breaks while I'm writing. And I don't plan a whole lot. I do have a certain sense of what I'm in the middle of. And once I'm into a project, I have a lot of fantasy tables of content. It's good to have those, but it's all opened and subject to change in the course of writing it. I guess if I have reliable writing habits. One is my desktop on my computer is kind of a mess, but it's partly because I have multiple copies of things. I do a lot of beginning and then just think, okay, I'm going to save that and try a different approach and see what happens there. So lots of different files. And I sort of trust the process of playing for a long time. Just play with this and see what you get and then going back and revisiting things. Even as I make a gesture about that revisiting, it feels like weaving. I had a thought, I had another thought, they might have something to do with each other. Hmm, How do they connect? You know, there's a verb that I learned from reading Jung years ago. He uses the verb to constellate and that was the only place I had ever heard of it. I think about the Greeks looking at the stars and making those constellations. I mean really Cassiopeia does not look like a woman in a chair but somebody thought it did and I just think about all the ways they connected dots to make pictures out of them. When I think about the the creative process they think there are a lot of dots out there. Start connecting them and see what you get. But it could be a different configuration. You could connect the dots differently. Having lots of little bits of things, different images that find their way into a poem or different paragraphs that occur to me along the way and then I see that there's a connection among them. That's kind of fun to do. It's not how I write everything. Sometimes I'm much more orderly than that, but I feel as though writing is so much an act of trust that something will emerge. If I write down a few sentences, if I write this paragraph, if I write this section, then I'll see where I am. So that'll be okay. I can trust the process to reveal to me what needs to
0: happen. That's fascinating. Very freeing as well. I've never thought of writing as a trust process. And I suppose as a trust process with yourself or trusting the process as well.
2: I know some things and I can count on that. I'm not inventing the wheel, but I also don't just lean into the things I know. I think that part of trust and play is to really trust the moment when you think, oh, you know what? I could use that. Why don't I try that? You know, just and stuff out and see what works. Nothing's going to break. You know those com- kids who work with computers, and they say, "I don't know if I'm not sure. I just start pushing buttons." And I think I'm so afraid to break break the machine. I don't do that. But they know the technology enough to just trust that if you play around with it, you might find something out. And I guess I feel that way about moving words around.
0: That's so great. I think probably more of us and definitely beginning writers, but also accomplished writers need that sense of freedom and play restored. I'm definitely someone who gravitates towards what's the structure? What's the right way to do it? What am I supposed to be keeping track of? What habits do I need to instill? And yet really that freedom is found in pursuing the play and journey of trust and trusting self and observing and practicing writing as that act of faith. So that is definitely a, a takeaway for me today.
2: I think of the two Annies, Annie Lamott and Annie Dillard, and both of them are such playful writers and very substantive, you know, play doesn't mean superficial at all. But I get the feeling when I read both of their work that they allowed things to come just let it come and see what you have. And you know, we were talking about prayer earlier and I feel as though one of the defining moments of my prayer life and there have been a number of these occasions. But when I'm just in a place of openness or meditation and not really talking, doing the talking at all. It's just sort of lifting up my anxieties or my concerns or my wondering. And one time I was sort of in this prayer place while I was driving and I stopped at a stoplight and I remember these four lines just came. It was like that moment when I got just say yes. I've held on to these for years. They were, you are held, you are witnessed, you are accompanied, you are loved. And I've just come back and back to that. It's my little personal liturgy. You are held, you are witnessed, you are accompanied, you are loved. But what struck me as powerfully as the message itself was the fact that there is that dimension of, Prayer, that if you open yourself to the presence of the Spirit, that the words you need will be given to you. You don't have to generate them. And so it was such a clear moment of learning how prayer is not just talking to God, it's allowing yourself to be addressed.
0: That's beautiful. And that creating space, the listening, the, the exchange and the deposit, that's... What a beautiful story and moment. And to
2: teach writing in the context of seminary in particular is to encourage people to recognize how seamlessly your writing life can become a kind of extension of an expression of your prayer life. At one point, I was complaining to my spiritual director that I didn't feel like I was making enough time for prayer in my day. And she said, and I was so grateful, she said, Well, I think I know you well enough to say that the work you're doing in your writing is part of your prayer life. And I don't think she was making excuses for me. I think she really was mirroring back to me that how deeply I feel as though that engagement with words, if you do it with an open heart and whatever integrity you can manage, is openness to the spirit who accompanies us.
0: That's beautiful. It makes me wonder, um, do you know the etymology of the word prayer? Have you looked... I don't know. I was just curious because you talk so much about... No, I usually about, do look up
2: etymologies. But I don't think yeah. I know.
0: It just makes me wonder what's there in terms of how we perceive that and the structures that we each bring from our own Christian traditions or subcultures and what that might speak to us about what prayer really is.
2: Well, you know what? I'm, right, I'm sitting right in front of my computer, so I just typed in etymology of prayer, and one of the roots is the same root as precarious. Huh. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. And it, it's and the entreaty, but I think that there's a relationship to the word precarious. It's just mm. wonderful that you, in prayer, you put yourself out in this place of risk, openness.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. I do wonder... How do you decide what to write next? You talked a little bit about sometimes it's structured, sometimes it's fluid. Does it end up being a combination of the two?
2: Sometimes it's just what opportunities come. And these days, because I've published a good bit, then the editors will suggest things. The recent book, Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict, came from some talks that I had given based on caring for words in a culture of lies, which I wrote in 2009 as a series of talks. And then it became a book that I think the idea of the book is still very pertinent, which is that we live in a very troubled, discursive environment where lies are increasingly tolerated or spin or hyperbole or inaccuracy and felt a real sense of mission around that book. And so the second one, which is kind of a sequel, was just staying with the question of what does it mean to be a good steward of language if language is a currency and a gift that binds us together as a culture, then we really need to pay the same kind of attention to it that we ought to be paying to forests and soil and the ocean, which we're not doing a very good job of that either. I think the analogy applies. Each of the books has just what are some strategies of stewardship that we might cultivate. So the second was just an extension of the list in the first one. And the book I wrote about list making was the suggestion of one of my editors. And when she suggested it, I just laughed like, really, there's not a whole book to about making lists. But I do like lists. And I think they're very generative and surprising because they're so open. It's not like an outline. But as soon as you start making a list of anything, like, what do I want now? And you start with the things that you know you want now. And all of a sudden, you start to surprise yourself. And that happens almost every time you make a list, if you stay with it. So that book just surprised me. I would started in and I thought, there are all these ways of using lists that can be fun, but also lead you into pretty deep places. And here's where they could go. And then I wrote these two books on um, death and dying that came out of hospice work. And an editor I was working with said, do you, how do you feel about writing a book for people who are dying, who know they're dying, and for their caregivers? It was a very humbling assignment and it turned out I couldn't write the same book for both of them. So it was two small books, one for people who are dying and one for those who are caring for them. And those were books that came out of a place of just the kind of prayerfulness that said, this is deep water I'm swimming in and I'm not the person who's dying. So I want to be as respectful as possible of an experience I haven't yet gone through. Yeah, so each of the books has come from a slightly different place of authority or curiosity or saying yes to something I don't even, didn't even expect to be working on. But the saying yes part of it is kind of like an improv theater, where they say whatever happens on the stage, just say yes.
0: And that goes back to your your beginning story as well. Just say yes. So you're also such a skilled teacher, an educator of writing, as well as other humanities. What draws you to the craft of teaching and of developing other writers?
2: Well, I certainly had some good models, not only in my family. My mother was actually my fifth grade teacher and one of the best teachers I ever had. She was a really gifted teacher. And as I said, my grandmother was a very teacherly presence in our home. So I sure had some good models there. And like most of us, I think I had two or three really formative teachers who changed my life or changed my way of approaching things. I loved what they did. I loved the relational, open-ended nature of teaching that you're not just working on something that comes to a conclusion, but you get somebody for a semester or a year of their life and you get to kind of help them find things out. I just love the kind of conversation that emerges with a student or fostering and encouraging curiosities and see what happens. So I guess I love the open-endedness of it. I think teaching and healing are a similar profession. The interest in medical humanities and working with doctors and med students has really helped solidify for me a sense that both healers and teachers are working with the body and the mind and, you know, who is this person? And what is their system, their body, their mind, their spirit? What are they ready for? What are they capable of? What do they need a little help with? But it's so nuanced and it's so in the moment. And I think one of the hardest things about teaching in institutional environments, which most of us do, is that the more we develop kind of structures of assessment or achievement and all the little boxes to check in curricula. The more we try to measure what we do, the more we start killing it. So, you know, I could go on a whole rant here, but I will try not to. I still feel like there's some way that I keep thinking of a book I read some years ago, and I can't remember who read it, called Killing the Spirit, which was about this sort of overstructuring of institutional environments. Because if I'm teaching King Lear in a classroom, There are some students who are really going to get it that semester, and there are some students who are going to struggle with it, but 10 years later, something in King Lear will really be formative and important for them. And I don't know that, and I don't have to know that. But if I come to the end of the semester and I'm supposed to measure outcomes, really, I think, I don't know. They got what they got. Can we move
0: on? It really brings teaching also into that journey of faith that you are molding and growing with other humans and the processes and the stories that we're embodying. And it is a faith journey to guide and to instill value in.
2: It is. And one of the confirmations of that has come sometimes when on alumni weekends or something, students come back and they say, you know, I've never forgotten this one thing you said. And either it's something you don't remember ever having said, or it was so, by the way, it was kind of not the main point, but you never know what sure. people are getting. You put out with as much clarity and honesty as you can what you have to say and you make your mistakes and you move along in your own path of trust. And I love that feeling that people are going to receive whatever they're able to receive at the moment. I can't make that happen, and I don't have to make that happen. I just have to offer the gift as cleanly
0: and clearly as I can. So we touched on this topic a little bit earlier. Um, I said I consider myself an aspiring writer, and sometimes I'm that person that struggles with believing that I have something valuable or unique to say, especially in a culture and a generation that is so saturated with words. Tell us a little bit more about what is your advice for overcoming this hurdle? How do you coach students or perhaps even more seasoned writers, both practically and emotionally, to engage with that trust journey in finding their voice and really trusting that they have something to say?
2: Yeah, I think the something to say part might be a phrase to change up a little bit because we all do have something to say. And I think it's important not to produce drivel. So there are things that are just silly and worthless, but most of us who really care about putting something of value into the world aren't going to be silly or trivial. We might need to push ourselves harder. We might need to clarify what we mean. We might need to just work work a little harder at the front end saying okay so i had this idea but what do i really mean here and what is what's an illustration of that and where does the analogy break down those kinds of questions but again i would come back to this question of energy which makes me sound very touchy-feely but that's the way it is i just think if you have energy if you think oh this is really this would be fun to write about i need to write about this and that trusting that that if that is given to you there will be some value in what emerges from that. And you don't have to know who that's for. What you do have to do is pay attention to the energy that's given to you. And it's not to say that you should never do work that involves drudgery or trudging through it or getting up the mountain. But I do think that it's important to notice if something is just fatiguing you and if it feels like drudgery, then maybe you're doing the wrong task. I come up back often to Jermaine Greer thing, if the struggle isn't joyous, it's the wrong struggle. And I know that can be trivialized, but there's some truth in there that if there isn't this sort of spring somewhere in you that says more is coming oh, yeah, let's just keep watching and see what happens. If there isn't that, hey, look, energy, then maybe you need to step back a little bit and say, am I working on the right stuff here? What wants to happen? I had a friend who was very good at asking questions that way. What is the sentence that wants to get said here? What wants to happen here? And it would sort of take it away from the self and put it out into open space where you think, what is emerging? What is unfolding? What is happening? What am I beginning to notice? oh, look at that. And so even if it's something that's happening internally, noticing what is happening rather than what am I trying to make happen is a very important shift. In staying in a place of faith that what's given to me to do is worth doing. I think about, you know, when you go into the European cathedrals or some of the really old, beautiful buildings in this country, but especially in European cathedrals, I remember seeing all the little beautiful scroll work and stuff that's done in stone up in some corner that nobody's ever going to see and you think about the artisan who never signed any of his work and the faith it took to just say this is my work this is what I know how to do I'm a stonemason I'm going to do this beautifully and then let it be out there in the world for whoever happens to see it the humility of that has stayed with me ever since my first trip to Europe. That collective endeavor of making something beautiful for God, and most of it unsigned and unsung, is a very humbling and a good reminder that maybe it would be better if we all published anonymously, but we don't. I wrote a piece one time called In Praise of Anonymity, which was sort of about this kind of thing. And then when I sent it in, I said, I'm really not even sure I should sign this. <laughs> he said, no, you don't have a byline. There was a little paradox there about publishing a piece in praise of anonymity.
0: So with that last word, tell us about your love for poetry and why we should all be writing it or at least reading it. Um, and is there a secret weapon to writing a great poem? To start with the love of poetry, I do believe that poetry does something that can't
2: be done in prose or it wouldn't be a poem. I mean, a test question about a poem when you're writing one is, does this need to be a poem? And one way to find that out is to put it in prose. Take the sentences in the poem and lay them out as prose. Or take the sentences in a paragraph and lay them out as a poem and see what happens to them. And sometimes you get a poem out of that. I actually know a friend who's a poet and he a lot of his poems come that way. He writes sentences and then he just plays with them and sees. If you start making line breaks and if you pay a little more attention to the phrasing, what begins to happen and how does meaning emerge from a phrase and not just a sentence? And the chemistry of words that sit next to each other on a line before it becomes a sentence is foregrounded in a poem. So I think a poem engages us in a different process of recognition or knowing or becoming aware than a prose sentence does. And so when people think of poetry as its own discipline, I think it has to do with learning a new way of thinking thinking, way of imagining and noticing how thoughts and feelings connect or emerge. The way poetry organizes your understanding in phrases rather than sentences makes you aware of the phrase. I'm thinking of Robert Frost's After Apple Picking, and one of the simple lines in there is, but I have had enough of apple picking now and the i've had enough if you i don't actually remember i think the line breaks there but just the phrase i have had enough you just sit with that there is a deep memory in most adults of coming to that moment of i've had enough i'm done i'm tired or I'm fulfilled. but that in itself is a phrase which is not yet a sentence delivers its own experience and when you add of apple picking. Apple picking is a physical memory if you've ever done it. But it's also an image. In that same poem, there's a line I've come back to so many times in my teaching life. He says, there were ten thousand, thousand fruit to touch, cherish in hand and not let fall. And I remember thinking about it on afternoons when there was a trail of students coming in at office hours. And some of them kind of whiny and with all their different needs. But just feeling like they're... Each one of these is someone to cherish in hand and not let fall. This is my apple picking. you know the poem gave me that by giving me that image and that moment and that sense of holding and caring for and setting down that for me immediately became a metaphor. For my life. Like all the hymns I was mentioning earlier, poems can leave you with little fragments that are like those loose electrons, you know, they connect, they make molecules with what's already in there. So yeah, I think if you think of poems in those chemistry terms, a poem leaves a lot of those kind of open electron chains that can mm-hmm. connect to things. Prose tends to be a little bit more closed, even when it's very poetic prose. And so you asked about making poems, and I think it's worth doing, even if you're not going to quote B a poet, which I said, I'm not altogether sure I am either, but, but I write quite a lot of poetry. Every year I write a poem for my husband on our anniversary. And you would think that's kind of cheesy and old, but it's really a challenge to say a new thing every year. Just the process of writing a poem mirrors your thought process back to you in ways that can be very helpful. You teach yourself by writing a poem and by moving, bringing words together in that way. Things happen that can't happen when you're crafting prose. And even if it turns out to be a quote bad poem or doesn't do anything very interesting, the process itself is valuable. I really believe that.
0: That's wonderful. It really does serve a different function that is much more like prayer, which you often make that connection between poems as prayer and the space that that creates.
2: Yeah. One of my recent books is called When Poets Pray. And I just collected a series of either poems that are prayers, specifically, or poems about prayer that lead you into prayer. What I was interested in was that point of connection between poetry and prayer, and that I actually believe that even poems that have no explicit spiritual content move you in the direction of prayer, because that kind of engagement, that reverent, open engagement with words themselves is a dimension of prayer life. It does take you back to in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that God spoke forth creation. As I understand it, the ancient Hebrews really had a high understanding of how words come out on the breath of life, that the spoken word has a kind of sacramentality or sacredness to it, because it's made of breath. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about what you impart when you speak something into the world. Yes,
0: that's beautiful. All educators, I think, hope that what they teach sticks in some way to their students. And you kind of commented on your your broad view of that earlier. Perhaps someone gets something right away and it's very apparent what they learned. And perhaps someone is taking something with them for a later season in life. But if you could make certain every student of yours left your classes with one principle or value, what would that be? Can I have two? Absolutely. (laughs) One is
2: think process and imagine that everything is a verb, not a noun. I think that if we, if we really cultivate a habit of mind, that everything we look at has a story behind it that somebody grew it or mined it and crafted it and marketed it and transported it and chose it you know all of those things lie behind everything everything we see and every person we encounter is at a moment in an ongoing story that you and I are happening we're not just sitting here being nouns We're in the process of being verbs. And even the idea that when God spoke God's name to Moses, it was a verb. It's to say that being itself, that we are all in process. So to see things in terms of the processes that underlie them means that we can push back against a culture that commodifies everything, makes it into a marketable product. I just cringe when I hear people talk about education as a product we deliver. And I've heard that language in schools. It is not a product. It's a process. So that's one thing, to just move our understanding in the direction of process and think of the world as verbs. And the second is to raise our tolerance for ambiguity or what Keats called negative capability, which he defined as the capacity of the poet's mind to dwell in paradox or ambiguity without straining after resolution. We live in such a culture of either or, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, left or right, black or white, you know, and it's that kind of polarization has been so destructive. But the gray area is where we live. Raising our tolerance for ambiguity, for just waiting to see How it plays out this time, or what is it like for this person, or the opposite may also be true in a sense, or we don't know yet, that kind of writing and walking into the unknown. And being willing to dwell in the ambiguities for a while keeps us from being bigots, and we really need not to be bigots. (laughs) So I think bigotry has to do with a very misplaced notion of fidelity that says, I'm taking this position and by gum, I'm going to offend it, come hell or high water. Instead of from where I stand, I mean, even Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. But the here I stand is I'm at one perspective point on the whole circle of 365 degrees. From what I can see right now, I hold strongly to the view I take. But I know that I don't have God's eye view. And so really being humbly aware of all of the possible mitigations and complications that are behind everything we look at. That as Ellen Goodman once said, the journalist who wrote in the Boston Globe for many years, she was speaking at Mills College when I taught there. And her last words were, the bottom line is always, it's not that simple. And that's such a good word for our moment, I think. To be able to sit with the ambiguities open-heartedly and see where they lead and what unfolds and what you can learn. That seems like it brings us back to that basic call to humility.
0: I'd love to close our conversation today by asking for three book recommendations and each one in a different category. So the first, I'm wondering about a book that would help us grow in our writing practice. The second, a book to grow in our faith. And the third, a book to grow in how we see the world.
2: Yeah, so I'll start with the third and uh, recommend a book that I've recommended many, many times, so often that I think I should be getting a commission from the publisher. (laughs) And that is Free Play, The Power of Improvisation in Life and Art. It's by a jazz musician named Stephen Nakamonovich. He reaches into many spiritual traditions to try to address the question of how people who are really spontaneous and lively and inventive can be in the moment. How do you stay in the moment and receive what's given in that moment and bring it forth rather than planning? I suppose you could think of it as how do you move deeply into the right brain? But I think in a more spiritual sense, how do you stay so open to the spirit that you can receive guidance that just comes... And says how do you say yes to the moment this comes back to seeing yeah and it's a yes. book about how to live that way and I have loved it so that's the
0: how to live category what were the other two how to grow in your writing practice and then uh, how to grow in your
2: faith. Well, I think that it is hard to recommend one book on the writing practice. I think there are a lot of how to write books out there and some are good and some are better. But I really think that how to grow in your writing practice comes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is find the models, the writers who enliven you when you read them and just open the book and read like a writer and say, how did she do that? And for me, I mentioned Annie Dillard. She's really been one I've come back to so often because you can flip open Pilgrim at Tinker Creek to any page and stick your finger down and go, oh, look at that sentence. It's one of those. George Steiner is another. His books are beautifully argued. He has a collection of essays called No Passion Spent, which includes a beautiful introduction to the Hebrew Bible. But Steiner is another who's a real artist of the sentence. So I think to find a writer whose sentences stop you and then spend a month with that writer and just spend some time with pages and learn how they do what they do. That's apprenticing yourself to a good writer. And apprenticeship is a way of learning that needs to be revived. I never learned writing from how to write books. I learned from people who write. And the matter of spirituality, there's so much beautiful work being done on the life of the spirit. I think about people who collect prayers, people who've done work in the Celtic tradition, or people who write into that tradition, like John O'Donoghue and Esther DeWall, and people who are exploring these deep roots of Christian practices as they first emerged from pagan practices and connect us to the earth. Those, I think, are worth exploring at this point of such dire concern about the fate of the earth. I think about certainly the spokespeople in our time, Rowan Williams in the Anglican tradition, and Bishop Tutu and Mother Teresa, just looking around and seeing who are the people who. We speak from a place of prayer now. I think of particular preachers. One interesting thing about being stuck in our homes and churches not meeting is that we may still go to our, you know, church gatherings on Zoom, but we've also done a lot of poking around on Sunday mornings to see who else is preaching and where are they doing it. I think one of the great preachers of our time is Fleming Rutledge. She lives in Virginia. She's one of the first ordained women in the Episcopal Church, a very lively person with a lively mind, and she's a good writer, and she has deep faith. And so you could pick up any of her collections of sermons and just be enriched. And even she has one collection, I think that's all Advent sermon. And so you would expect a certain amount of repetition in it, but the liveliness she brings to these deep grooves in faith tradition and very familiar stories is a, great model for what it means to come back to what we know and let it be new and to really recognizing that the word we inhabit is the living word. She's one of my mentors. Yeah,
0: she is a phenomenal woman. We've had the honor of hosting her here at Upper House and she has a a deep care for words as well and an understanding of how they string together, not just in writing, but in in the practice of preaching. That's such a delightful sense of humor and she's
2: very smart and she has deep faith and she also does not suffer fools.
0: Marilyn, it has been such a joy to get to know you more, to follow and be led through all of these interconnections in your world and your story through your teaching and your writing. Um, There's so much for us to glean about your posture to the Spirit, to prayer, to God, to the practice of teaching and educating, and to giving voice to our own stories and the way we are all writers and speakers and people of God. Thank you you so much. Thank you for the chance. It's lovely to talk with you. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Baer. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson. And graphic design by Madeline Ramsey.